I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzoned, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, an urban planner with Gould Evans, and today I'm joined by regular co-host and CEO of Strong Towns, Chuck Marone. Chuck, I don't know if it's been uh, if it's that the weeks are just feeling more like years lately, but I feel like I haven't talked to you in a while on this show. How are you doing? It has been a while. I'm doing wonderful, actually. I'm doing very nice, and things here in central Minnesota are are very <laughs> gorgeous and, and and peaceful. And we're in that great time of year for the weather. And my garden is growing, and my flowers are growing, and. Uh, and all that. So I'm, I'm trying to look at the positive for everything. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. We are in the midst of summer now, so it's starting to get very hot in Kansas City. And I've just been doing a lot of biking, still working at home, obviously. And, um, you know, just getting by, getting through the summer. So the article that we'll be covering today is called A Rural Roadship in the Search of Lost Americana. It was published in the American Conservative by a photographer named Vincent David Johnson, who talks about his experience photographing small towns on historic rural routes, specifically his most recent documentation of the original 1913 route of the Lincoln Highway, which is a road that seems to intentionally avoid major cities between Pittsburgh and Denver, and what Johnson calls a quintessentially rural route. Hoping to capture a story of growth and resilience, the author already knows he can expect to witness and photograph decline in small towns along this route caused by decades of job stagnation, community disinvestment, and even a shift in how travelers participate in these local economies. The development of bypasses has made it more convenient to avoid historic downtowns and stop by instead corporate eateries rather than local businesses. He writes, As a culture, we've not only succumbed to the idea of saving a few minutes on travel, but we've also completely given up on taking time to explore. This is a kind of sad article, but one that is really relevant to small and mid-sized cities alike that struggle in supporting an economy of local businesses that ultimately must compete with national change propped up and promoted by our built infrastructure. So Chuck, you've discussed challenges in small towns in previous content, and you also live in the small town of Brainerd, Minnesota. Is this something that your town struggles with, and how do you see recent economic impacts now from COVID-19 impacting small towns in America? There's a book I read years ago by John Steinbeck, who I'm, I'm just, from a literary standpoint, just infatuated with his writing style. I love Steinbeck. He, he wrote a book called Travels with Charlie. The full title is Travels with Charlie in Search of America. And Charlie is his dog. And this was published in 1980. So he's a, you know, a much older man than when he wrote The Grapes of Wrath and some of the things he was more famous for. 
I, th- I think by 1980, he was, you know, well into his seventies. He took a RV, basically like a, one of those pickup truck uh, campers and him and his dog just drove across America. And the idea was to experience this kind of in the way that, you know, this article uh, with the Lincoln Highway talks about. You're just struck in both of these instances over and over with, I think from, from both perspectives of Steinbeck and also, you know, the, the article in the American Conservative by Vincent Johnson, you know, you're, you're stuck with this sense that there's a hopelessness here, like it's all in decline. And you see the same repetitive landscape over and over and over. And, and if you if you scratch the surface, if you dig into it, yes, you'll find things that are unique and you'll find things that are are worthy of your time and effort. Uh, but really just the default is an endless chain of McDonald's restaurants and you know Walmarts and franchise gas stations. Having lived this, having lived like the other side of it, you know, the the place that these like cultural tourists are coming through. When I read Travel with Charlie, I was just like, oh my gosh, I, I would love to have been on this ride with you, Steinbeck. As I read this article by, you know, Johnson, I, I would have loved to have been able to kind of interpret this for him because yes, there is ridiculous amounts of desperation. I, I think though, it's put through this, kind of cultural lens of rural areas are just not important anymore, or they've just, you know, they had their day and now they're gone. And, and what we've completely overlooked, or we we don't discuss in any of this lament are the, what I think are like the two biggest factors. One is like the macro forces that we have intentionally put in place around efficiency and around economic growth that have impose this kind of decline on small towns and rural areas. And then I think on the other hand, the what Jim Kunstler has said many times is the rush to, in a sense, commit suicide economically, socially, culturally by many small towns in you know a, a rush to get just slightly bit more ahead, at least perceived, of where you're at today. You know, both of those two factors weigh very, very heavily on the fact that you know, we see broad decline, distress. You know, if we were diagnosing this as a as a doctor, uh, we're diagnose a patient. You know, if this were a young patient, we would say failure to thrive. If we looked at it as an elderly person, we would just say, you know, they are in the end of life. And you know, I know a lot of people who live in small towns and rural would push back on that. And, you know, we should discuss like a post-COVID narrative of small town revival, which I think, you know, may have some validity. But for the most part, you're looking at, from a strong towns lens, particularly, the most insolvent and fragile places in a country of insolvent and fragile places. Yeah, well, I think that the revitalization of small towns means completely rethinking the approach of economic development that we've been pursuing for the past 70 years. I think a lot of grief around the death of small towns comes from more than just a place of nostalgia. To me, the death of small towns represents the breakdown of functional local economies for the purpose of creating personal convenience and familiarity for travelers. By consolidating resources and capital in a way that is wrapped into this really complicated financial system, 
we trade stability for efficiency, which is something that we've talked about a lot. Yes, if you are on a road trip across the country, it's much more convenient for bypasses to take you around every small town rather than going through it, where you now have highway ramps and signage to direct you to a familiar corporate chain. Why would you stop in the town to find a diner or a local hardware store when the Walmart and Padsite fast food chain is just more convenient? What this also kind of represents is a misallocation of our tax dollars. We use public money to build new infrastructure that is ultimately resulting in the disempowerment of local communities in the name of efficiency. When investments in infrastructure are made, it's so important to ask ourselves who our tax dollars are really benefiting and what the unintended consequences might be. In this case, bypasses are constructed using public funds to create an incentive for non-local retailers and restaurants to come in, making the existing local businesses redundant. And to add another layer to that, if the, let's just say Walmart and chains were eventually to go out of business down the road, the existence of the bypass infrastructure continues to discourage small businesses from even bouncing back, at least in the downtowns. So we've diverted traffic away from the downtowns. And because of that, reinvesting in those buildings and that kind of building infrastructure and opening new small businesses becomes much more risky uh, than it was when travelers were forced to move through the main streets. So there's an interesting notion, I think, that struggling small towns need to be saved with infrastructure investments so that they can attract these corporate retailers and capture tax revenue. What is often missed is kind of a huge opportunity cost associated with implementing that kind of economic development strategy. It actually ends up limiting opportunities for local people to live a more prosperous life in a small town. There's a couple ironies here that are, I think, relevant to the current time. You know, we we look at major metropolitan areas and we say one of the, I was going to use the word crime, but I think that's the wrong word. You know, one of the injustices that was performed on large cities was running highways through the middle of them. Uh, we took coherent neighborhoods with their own you know, economics, their own cultures, their own social structures. Uh, and we ran highways through the middle of them in a way that disrupted all of that. And, and we can look at that and we can see very clearly like the disruptive nature that that had on communities in major cities. And we lament that today. I mean, you go to planning school and you will get inundated with how this was a horrible injustice. When we go to small towns, a lot of our early highways were run right through the middle of the city. And it it didn't have that impact because what they would do is they would run uh, like things called truck routes, uh, which if you're not from a small town or you're, you're younger, uh, you don't really remember truck routes. I barely remember them. I more remember them from legend. But a truck route was basically like, we're going through the middle of town with this highway. The middle of town is like too small for a big truck. So if you're driving a big truck, here's the slow, uh, circuitous winding route you're going to take on dirt roads and stuff to get around the core of town. Of course, from an efficiency standpoint, that's not very efficient. Um, you want to be able to drive your big truck from the farm collecting the milk or the wheat or the corn or whatever it is you're bringing into town, as, you know, through town into the major center as quickly as possible. And so what the second iteration of highways were through small towns was to go around, to bypass them. 
the irony was, you know, this is like the opposite strategy of what you did in big cities. Um, you basically went around town, you created a, an entirely new ecosystem around this, uh, whether it was, you know, the, the intersection where you had the gas station now and the truck stop and, and all that, uh, the hotel would locate out to the edge of town, all the, the food, uh, would be these, you know, if you could get a, a national franchise, everyone would cheer because look, we got a McDonald's now we made it, you know, get the Walmart out there. And you, you basically like gutted out the whole complex ecosystem of the city. At the same time, you were, in a sense, shifting the whole economics of the place. We went through and redid the highway through the middle of my town uh, two summers ago. So my city was bypassed in 1998, 1999, something along that. We were uh, later in the process. There's a big bypass built around the the uh, west side of town. The old highway still runs through the, the very center. And so we were going through and going to redo that highway. And it's actually the highway, the old highway, but it's also South 6th Street. So it's like our major street through town. I came up with a design to throw into the mix that would actually make this a really great street. Narrow up the lanes, uh, convert the four lanes into two lanes with some parking added, uh, make it much more walkable, much more bikeable, make it basically a great street for the people who lived here. The businesses all along that street fought every inch of the way for the maximum number of lanes we could get. They gave up parking in order to get the lanes. What they wanted was they wanted uh, the highway traffic or the, you know, the, the traffic that would leave the highway and come through town to be able to get through essentially as quickly as possible so that they were not deterred from coming through town. Because the theory was if we could just get them off the highway and not really slow them down all that much, we can get a percentage of them to stop. And they'll stop at our gas station, which is a franchise chain. They'll stop at our restaurant, which are franchises. They'll stop at our strip malls, which are, you know, owned by outside capital owners. Th this is us committing suicide, right? I mean, th this is, as Kunzler said, this is like us harming ourselves. And the fact that we spent millions of our own dollars to match like state funds that were given to us to do this project is just, you know, a tragedy upon a tragedy. But you step back and look at it, and I've tried to do this. I've, I've tried to be empathetic to the people along corridors like this. And the reality is, is this is what everyone was sold as success. And it's also kind of all you know. These places are just barely hanging on. And the idea of like changing and adopting a whole new development model and completely like redoing the, uh, the emphasis of, of the core of the city that's a risk that they're just not willing to take. And so we live with this long, slow decline and it's grinding and it's painful. It's in many ways like fruitless. Yeah. Well, something that the author points out about the, the fact that our former way of traveling was so such a significant driver for these local economies back in kind of what he called the golden days of American travel or car travel, and how public investment and bypass infrastructure essentially shifts our dollars away from local communities and into corporations and, and corporate interest. When we build the infrastructure uh, to promote travel, to bypass small towns, we're also shifting potential dollars spent. And maybe some people don't lament the loss of the family-owned restaurant or the hardware store because 
the corporate big box saves you a couple bucks, but that I don't even think that's really the whole picture. A functioning local economy is much more of an ecosystem than we give it credit for. And the small business is much more likely to be hiring a local accountant, a local print shop, sourcing food from a local farmer, getting financed through a local bank and working with uh, a local insurance agent. It has occurred to me that there may be a connection between this topic and the discussion that we often hear in our popular dialogue around the wealth gap and the transfer of wealth upward. In the case of small towns, we've essentially utilized public dollars to incentivize market consolidation, making existing small businesses redundant. And so in that, we're allowing our tax dollars to subsidize a built environment that facilitates the movement of consumer spending from local people to large corporations. And that story kind of makes me think that, you know, corporate interests are continuing to promote a built environment that is really kind of hostile to local business and and walkable communities. I I would take it a step further. And you're exactly right. Let me put it in very stark terms. When we look at like the county I live in or go in any of like the rural counties around us, the number one import of capital. So where does the capital from our economy here come from. The number one import of capital is from the federal government. It's transfer payments in for Medicare, for Medicaid, for Social Security, and for other like, you know, uh, assistance payments. It's it's government money. Number two, where does the money come from? The state government. It's transfers in for social assistance and that type of thing. It's money that comes in as assistance. Now, just note, we're not like one of the poorest. I mean, we have some very impoverished places here. And my city in particular is a very poor city graded on a curve within the state. Um, but we have some of the wealthiest, you know, properties in the state. I mean, we have a vacation land lake Mecca from a couple hours north of Minneapolis, St. Paul. It's a rather wealthy, affluent place in many ways. Our economy is completely dependent on these transfer payments coming in. Here's the thing though. You look at everything that's been set up from an economic standpoint, and it's designed to suck that capital out as quickly as possible. Everything from the famous Taco John's example we've used here at Strong Downs many times to, you know, all those stores out on the highway bypass, uh, they're basically designed from a, a corporate standpoint, whether you're, you're Walmart or Target or Costco or whoever, uh, to suck that capital coming in suck that out of the community as quickly as possible with as little bit of pass around turnaround as you possibly can. This is devastating, just devastating because it says that no matter how much capital you pump into here, it doesn't actually build any wealth because it doesn't flow around to anyone. It just goes out as quickly as it comes in. It's not being built here. It's not being uh, created here. It's not being sustained here. There's no local feedback loops that make it actually grow and expand over time. It's just a racket to you know flush money in through all these different you know programs and schemes and then flush the money right back out without any wealth being created. And, and that that's the story of small towns in rural America. And it, when we get to the whole conversation about wealth inequality and we get to the whole conversation about the politics of this country and our inability to understand across rural and urban and what have you, 
there's a lot of people who are just disillusioned as heck with what they're being told is the narrative of this story because it doesn't correlate with the narrative that they see out their doors. Uh, you know, which is one of the more you try to help, the actually worse it gets. Yeah, it's really a, an extractive model, and it's completely what, extractive. Yeah. What's a bigger shame is that we're using public dollars. Remember, tax dollars are our money <laughs> that we um, are using to essentially subsidize an extractive model, and that's that's a real issue that is not getting enough attention. I think. Um, we don't have to spend too much time on this, but I think an important point that the author touches on briefly is how we've also massively subsidized the airline industry, which the author describes as figuratively one big overpass network over America. I'm kind of kicking myself that that never occurred to me until I read this article. When we travel by plane, the establishments that you come into contact with between two airports are pretty much guaranteed to not be a local business at all and are also very much removed from any small towns or, or any type of local economy. Traveling by air is surely more convenient in a lot of ways, but after reading this article, it definitely makes me question the impact of opting away from the road trip way of American travel. So I actually think that that's something that we could spend an entire episode on, but I think it's a really good point that the author brought up. Well, air travel is delightful the way that a good train ride is delightful. I think what we have done is that we've 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 basically stroded all of this to use a colloquialism from our language. We've made these hybrids. And so instead of having, you know, like great air travel uh, between important places and then having, you know, local places in between, we've basically made everything about a hyper-efficient network from, you know, all the way from the airline that takes me from Minneapolis to Orlando to, you know, the street that takes me from here four blocks away to my house. The street from here to my house should be a slow, lazy trip. It should not be a high-efficient trip. There should be like a framework for wealth creation and growth and investment and, you know, all that along there where there's, you know, there doesn't need to be that along in airlines because that's not the function it serves. As someone who is very like market oriented and believes in markets and the feedback that markets provide from an evolutionary standpoint, the fact that we have come to the conclusion that there's no difference between an international market or a, a national market and a local market, that they all function the same, and that the same kind of efficiency output should be the thing we strive for. It's a bias built into the system that is not healthy in any way. If we could do one thing for small towns, it would just be to actually slow them down a little bit, you know, disconnect them a little bit more. And that is the antithesis to what everyone there will tell you. We need to modernize. We need to get more connected. We need to get more, uh, you know, plugged into what's going on. We need to become more efficient. And the reality is if we want them to survive, it's got to be the exact opposite. Yeah, especially in times like these. So before we wrap up this conversation today, we are going to conclude as usual with the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we've been reading, watching, listening to, or just any interesting activities that we've been doing. So Chuck, what do you have for us today? What have you been up to these days? I've been dabbling with a book, kind of evening reading. So 
This has been a, a little bit slower than some of the other reads I do. I've been reading a, a book by Yanis Varoufakis, who is the former Greek finance minister back in the, you know, after the meltdown when Greece was going to go bankrupt and take down the whole European Union. He wrote a book called Adults in the Room, My Battle with the European and American Deep Establishment. And I've listened to him be interviewed a number of times, and I really have enjoyed his insights. I don't know if he is a communist or not, but he certainly is like very, you know, socialist, you know, very far financially on the spectrum for where I tend to sit. But I have found his insights very much like the insights of Marx, which, you know, if you read them, they're actually very good. Uh, I'm not necessarily a Marxist, but I think the guy was very smart. Giannis is also very, very smart, and his insights and his way of looking at things is really enlightening. And I've heard a quote from him, and it came out of this book, and I thought, I need to read that book. So Adults in the Room, My Battle with the European-American Deep Establishment, has been very entertaining so far. And if you don't like Larry Summers, which I tend to not, you'll appreciate the way he starts the book too. So just go through the first chapter, you'll enjoy that. That sounds like a good one. I'm actually revisiting a book that I read when I was in college called American Nations by Colin Woodard. Oh, yeah. The, you've read that. Oh, yeah. That's fantastic. That's a, that's a blow your mind kind of book. Yeah. It really is. For those of you listening who have not read this book, the author basically presents a map of North America that breaks it down. He breaks down the entire continent into 11 distinct nation states where dominant cultures explain things like voting patterns and linguistic dialects. Um, he even goes into like religious denominations and general attitudes towards social issues and the role of government and society. He also explores the question about whether or not North America even has an overarching culture at all. His idea basically is supported by historical migration and colonization patterns of early settlers and the subsequent events that have defined our continent in the way in a way that transcends legal borders. This book, to me, it really altered my perspective when I was a student about North America as a continent, and I always recommend it to people, and I think it's even more significant during election season, specifically if you are a curious person who is interested in better understanding the vast differences in public opinion that we often see in this country from sort of a high-level regional perspective. Um, you know, I'm someone who grew up in St. Louis, and uh, the map touches, and St. Louis touches two distinct areas on the map that he's laid out that he calls the Midlands and the Appalachians. And I definitely grew up seeing those distinctions that he describes in those two different regions. So it, to me, it's really interesting. And the only thing that this book doesn't really get into is sort of the cultural nuances at a more granular level where you'd probably see even more cultural distinctions being played out based on whether you live in an urban, suburban, or rural context, um, as well as attributes like class and race and level of education. He doesn't really recognize all of those nuances in this book. It's kind of more high level, but you know, I'd really like to read a book that explores this even further, although I'd still definitely recommend this book. It's funny because it affirmed to me so many things that I 
like intuitively grasp but didn't really put a notion to. For example, I'm in Yankeedom, according to his map, uh, here in central right. Minnesota. And I'm actually, you know, thought often like people from Wisconsin, we tend to have like an affinity with, like I get them, but Iowa and the Dakotas, like just don't click as much. Well, Iowa and Dakotas are the Midlands. And then Dakotas start to get into the far West and the far West has a very different culture. It's a very different nation to use his words. I know that part of the critique of the book came from people who did not like the deep South, you know, way of uh, the present, his presentation of the deep South. I have to say as someone from Yankeedom and as someone who spent time in the deep South, his book has explained a lot to me. Like it's, it's a lot like where, you know, you get a little bit offended because people will say, you know, this group has this broad trend and this group has this broad trend. And you have to grasp like through the whole thing that you're not talking about individuals. You could say that women tend to be better at this than men. And you're not saying like every single woman is better than every single man at this. But as general, you know, there's general like broad trends this book does that same thing. And for people who have a trouble thinking that way, it really can challenge them and, and almost be, I think, offensive in some way. I've seen people take offense to it. But in people who are interested in like macro trends and forces and things that shape culture and shape like localized conversations, it's a genius book with deep insight. For those people listening, if you've ever taken one of those tests on Facebook where it asks you like 20 questions about, you know, do you say soda or pop or Coke? And then it's, you know, it's like all these things. Yeah. And then when you finish, you press the button and it points to exactly <laughs> where you're from on the map. Basically, that is this research. You know, it's it's like, okay, in Minnesota, we say duck, duck, gray duck. And I didn't even know that anyone else anywhere said duck, duck, goose. Like, what is that? I don't get that. Like, I've never even heard that. And I found out, you know, that's what we say here. Like, why do we say that? I have no idea why, but that's what we do. This book really gets into these different cultural nations that have a lot of things in common with each other, but are very distinct from other parts of North America. And yeah, it's one of my favorite books of all time, really. Duck, duck, gray duck. I've never heard of that in my life. Yeah, see, you say <laughs> duck, duck, goose, right? Exactly. I've never, I've, I grew up and we would in gym class and like kindergarten, we would play duck, duck, gray duck. We would never, we would never play duck, duck, goose. Like I don't, when people said that, I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like I've never even heard of this. Yeah. So we are very much in Minnesota. It's duck, duck, gray duck. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's, it's kind of funny. We've been doing work in Indianapolis with Joe and, and the Urban 3 team. And in Indianapolis, they call themselves Hoosiers. And in St. Louis, that's, that's a bad word. And so going there, it's kind of, it kind of freaks me out when I see it everywhere because I'm like, oh no, that's derogatory. But it's, you know, that's apparently just a St. Louis thing. And I have no idea what the history is, but it is really interesting that there's, kind of these little nuances like that. Um, and I do think, you know, this book is interesting because it highlights kind of these really broad, really continent-wide distinctions. But I think it's one piece of a, a greater puzzle if you're trying to understand social sciences and, and political sciences. I think this is, this is kind of one larger layer of that where you could really 
dig deep into into that as a study. So it's it's a worthwhile book. To finish off, you should know that Colin Woodward has a brand new book out this month. Uh, it's called Union, The Struggle to Forge the Story of United States Nationhood. And I actually have it and uh, want to start reading it this weekend. So maybe we'll talk about that one next week. Yeah, I did not know that he was coming out with a new book. So I'm going to have to pick that one up or I guess order it. <laughs> well, this was a good discussion. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Upzoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Let me show you what I'm about to do.